All right, um, I think we're ready to run this from the top one more time. Rhett, I need you to stand over here. Scarlett, you're going to be right over there. Opening scene, Gone with the Wind, and action. War? We? Isn't it exciting, Scarlett? Those fools Yankees actually want a war. We'll show them. Fiddle DD, war, war, war. This war talk spoiling all the fun at every part of this spring. I get so bored, I could scream. Besides, there isn't going to be any war. Of course there's going to be a war. Great balls of fire. Rhett, if you say war just once again, why, I'll walk in the house and slam the door. But Scarlet, honey, don't you want there to be a war? Well... And cut. Hello and welcome to Secret Architecture, the process of process. My name is George Stave and I'm the Artistic Director of Stave Dance, an Atlanta-based contemporary dance company, and I'll be your host for this 10-part series. Through dynamic conversations with artists of all kinds from across the country, we're going to explore arts and culture as invisible and benevolent dictators, all while we break ourselves open and ponder the unanswerable. Hello and welcome to episode two. This is George Stave and I'm very happy to have you with us today. When I extended the invitation to my guests for today's conversation, I told them in a nutshell, we would discuss whether or not we believe profound and deep love can be a catalyst for hateful actions. Because in an ideal world, or the way I kind of pictured it, I thought, Crimes of passion, yes, of course. If you witness something terrible happening to a loved one, who knows what extent you might go to to uh, avenge them, to bring a sense of personal justice, or what kind of work you might have to do to find forgiveness. As I dove deeper into research and uncovering questions for the guests, I recalled uh, some writing that I stumbled upon in college by Frederick Nietzsche, which is probably every uh, existentialist's go-to when they're in a little crisis. I came upon this language. We must learn to love, learn to be kind, and this from earliest youth. Likewise, hatred must be learned and nurtured if one wishes to become a proficient hater. We attack not only to hurt another person, to conquer him, but also, perhaps, simply to become aware of our own strength. Reading that does kind of rattle the cage to some degree because it does impart an inclination to be violent, rude, or hateful just for the sake of being, to flex muscles. And it is from this standpoint that I have asked our guests to venture deeper into the work that they created and also to look at the ways they're seeing the world right now uh, with regard to a lot of social justice movements that we are encountering. Uh, to round out this little introduction, I thought I'd share with you another quote from Nietzsche. He says, we must think of men who are cruel today as stages of earlier cultures, which have been left over. They are backward men whose brains because of various possible accidents of heredity, have not yet developed much delicacy or versatility. They show us what we all were and frighten us, but they themselves are as little responsible as a piece of granite is being responsible for being granite. 
So without any further delay, I'd like to get into the meat of today's conversation and just tell you some great stuff happens towards the end. Today is a conversation I've been looking forward to for quite some time because uh, these two individuals entered my life about two years ago. Even through what might seem like casual interactions and sharing work, the impact that I feel that they have had on my thinking and on the work that I hope to create one day and the way I look at the world has definitely been marked. First is Tanya Weidman Davis, and to me it's really kind of rare. And that a pivotal dancer, somebody who's recognized globally, can take so effortlessly to the studio as a choreographer. This is not the norm, yet Tanya does so. And as a performer, she was with the Dance Theater of Harlem, the Joffrey Ballet, Complexion's Contemporary Ballet. And this is only a handful. There just is not enough time to list all of her credits. And as a teacher, her voice and artistic giftings have been shared with dancers from the uh, North Carolina School of the Arts, the Milwaukee Ballet, Steps on Broadway, and in the Dominican Republic. Again, only a handful of her accomplishments. Foremost in my mind is the research that she embraces, which to me has become a defining characteristic of Tanya as an artist. It's a provocative assembling of imaginings and the grounding of practicality that ushers her forward and dedicates her to examining race, gender, femininity, identity, and location. Thaddeus Davis, her husband, and dare I say, male-identifying counterpart, has a career that has equal luster and breadth. A highlight that stands out to me is his work as a cultural envoy to Portugal. He, too, has an extensive teaching career, which has taken him to the Boston Ballet, Ballet Austin, Dance Theater of Harlem, and the Northwest Professional Dance Project. His performance career even earned him a dance magazine top 25 to watch in 2002. And likewise, his current research centers on gender, class, race, and technology all through an African-American lens. Together, imagine these two hurricanes joining forces now, and they create work that is thoughtfully produced and, to me, mindfully jarring. Uh, There is care in what they make, and there is absolutely no apologies for the issues the work surrounds. Their latest work, which is how I kind of came to know them, is titled Migratus Ataraxia, and it reimagines antebellum homes in the South as places for reconciliation, conjuring if-then scenarios, and provides an uplift which, to me, speaks clearly and succinctly and delivers a catharsis that one rarely encounters in live performance. They see humanity in ways that are enviable, and I'm so overjoyed to have this time with them in an episode that I'm calling Spilling the Tea for Two. Get it, Tanya and Thaddeus? <laughs> Together, a tea and tea. So welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. We're happy to be here. It's it's pretty, it's very special. It honestly is. And before we get into the hard-hitting questions, what's going on in your uh, quarantine Chicago world right now? Woo, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, I think, well, we're, you know, we're normally in South Carolina at this time of year being, you know, in fact, at University of South Carolina. Um, and so we had the option to teach face-to-face or, or to do online courses. Um, and so we made a decision that it was best for our sort of health to go, uh, go online. And so that put us in a position to be able to think about how do we teach on this platform of Zoom or, or meeting, go to meet. Um, and it's really an interesting, it's an interesting learning curve. Um, I think it's a challenge, but we're really kind of 
figuring a lot of things out and what works and what doesn't work. And every day or every week you find something new. Um, so that's kind of what's immediately going on. Yeah, I think we had to figure out how we were actually going to teach remotely, too, because we knew we didn't want to do it from our homes. That just feels like, you know, inviting into a space that we call very sacred. So what we decided to do was to rent space and have studio space so that we could actually teach our classes. And so we outfitted it for a dance studio at a really interesting place here in Chicago called Bridgeport Art Center. And it was the old Spiegel catalog building where they rented out to artists. And so it's a really vibrant place to actually be teaching and making work now. Yeah, because uh, for me, even my experience watching your work kind of revealed that process is insanely important to both of you and also that which can only be extracted in person. So it sounds like you've done as much as you can to recreate the real scenario. Yeah. I mean, I think putting yourselves in a studio and not having to dodge a coffee table here and there when you're demonstrating <laughs> and moving changes everything, right? Do you think of yourselves as artists who respond or artists who are more storytellers? I think it depends. Mm -hmm. I think because we don't just choreograph. Our work is so steeped in like having connections with community. Right. So there's the storytelling component that might happen before the work is even created, that we're going into community and having conversations with people to build storytelling that would be responsive to the situation. Like seeing what things are really pushing our but buttons and like what's really kind of like, this is... Mm, this feels uncomfortable. So it's not always, it's very, it's very rare that it's like the, the, the so-called pretty things. Right. It's like, it's really like, you know, we did a work in South Carolina some 10 or 12 years ago that was about homelessness in a non-urban community, like maybe a big Atlanta or like Columbia, where people are not walking, even though it's a college campus, People that are homeless there are trying to disguise their homelessness by having a backpack, by having all these things that make them kind of fit in. But right. when you see a group at the Starbucks one day and you see them later, two days later, at a different Starbucks with the same clothing on, you know. And so we just start to see things and go, there's some patterns here. That creates our interest to kind of go, well, let's figure out what's different with being in some place like a town like Columbia, which is a city, but it's not like Atlanta or New York or Chicago city. Which exactly. seems to be a place that seems like it would have lots of resources. The way that the migration of homeless populations move in the city is very different than what we had come from, New York. Yeah. And just being like really cognizant and, and like responding to that every morning driving to work and seeing this transition of them coming from the shelter to different parts of the city. It was almost like a processional. Yeah. Why do you think artists and art enthusiasts might be drawn more to darker subject matter rather than that which we think is beautiful in a classical sense? I feel like I see beauty in things that are not necessarily determined pretty or beautiful. And so just breaking down that context of like what imagery 
we are transcribing to have this, you know, moniker of the pretty. Like I look at ballet sometimes and I think it's ugly. Uh huh. I think it's ugly because of all of the things that it has done to erase people's identity. Absolutely. Like Nutcracker is offensive to me now. I did it my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> like just if you go back and actually think about the imperialism. Right. That we, uh, go to the theater to actually be a part of and be complicit in to watch this thing. And because it's got point shoes attached to it and people dancing in pink, then we all decide that it's pretty. Um, and so. there's, there's a bit about like, you know, those listening to time and thinking about what you were asking, like, well, well, you know, we, if we look back historically, like who gets to do abstraction? Great question. Who gets to be abstract and then mm-hmm. yet still be so-called, successful or supported who gets to just do these things that are just well you can't understand it because it's like the thinking mind it's the thinking male male player like who gets to do that that's a very privileged place and so thinking about but then i can honestly say i love the idea of just pure movement movement is my entry into choreography it's not from a like I take a score of music and I read the score and I then I choreograph. No, it's not like that. Moving bodies is what I'm interested in. And so mm-hmm. moving bodies come with history and story when they're moving. So then the narrative comes into the space because the people are there. Like we look at everyday life, then we're living a narrative that is just like, well, everyone has reference to these specific kind of gestures and specific meanings. And so... They mean something in my culture or my specific community differently than it does yours. But you can recognize that we are in a community when we're responding in these ways. Yeah. So I think that narrative is just like a part of the experience that we're interested in and always have been. With that, can you talk a little bit more about uh, then the relationship to truth? Because you used a lot of truth in the making of this last work. And I would wager a bet that that might be an overarching thing for your work individually and as well as a duo. Yeah. I feel like in this work, we do a lot of deconstructing of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, we use the um, slave codes as part of our text. And those slave codes are not necessarily from a place of definitive truth, because a lot of times the people who were actually interviewing the people were connected to the plantations that they were interviewing the slaves. So the slaves had a connection to quite possibly the people who were interviewing them, but also the hierarchy of caste, the relationship between these two people. And at that time, white folks were really interested in hearing the stories that they felt comfortable with, but there was this other narrative that was coming out that, you know, you just, it's undeniable. You have to, in some way, um, let that story be told in order to get the work done. And in that, in that process, it's like, um, so you look at this written document, two of them, one being the, you know, where you came in was the Alabama State Slave Codes, which determined how Alabama were de- was dealing with their slaves and the treatment and punishment and the kind of their kind of ability to move around. 
managing them. Managing them. So laws surrounding slaves. And then there's these slave narratives. And so inside of all of this writing, there are the, there's the meta text. It's like I'm, I'm saying as, as a slave, as a former slave being interviewed by a white WPA interviewer. Funded. Funded interviewer. by the government. I'm, they're coming down here, and I'm a black person that's a former slave. I'm responding to them under traditions of keeping white folks happy with what they're hearing. So as we read their responses, we see you can read in the, the meta text in there saying, this is what I'm saying, but this is what I really mean. And so how do you process interpretations of your work that might miss the mark? I think when we performed Migratus in um, Alabama in January, we had several post-performance discussions. And one of the shows was when some of the white descendants came to the performance. Descendants of the home? That, yes. That the performed? Uh-huh. Descendants of the plantation home. And it was really interesting, the perspectives that they took on and this wasn't all of them, but some of them in the context of really wanting to hold on to that happy slave narrative that, you know, we took good care of our slaves and it, we didn't we don't think that it was that bad. Which is why the work is not trying to be reflective of white people's perspective on enslavement. Mm hmm. It's trying to be reflective of the humanity inside of those people that were called slaves. And what did they do to survive, not just to survive the oppression, but what were their everyday interactions with each other? How did they love each other? How did they, and what was their lives like, if it was ever possible, when the eyes were not watching them? The reality they created away from the quote-unquote camera. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so we don't, a lot of that, so when we go pinpoint accuracy, we don't know a lot of that. We have narratives that we, that remain, that we already know are skewed and inaccurate. But again, on the other flip side of what they do reveal, we also, we also go, well, this feels like this person was taking this moment to let you know a little bit more about them in this direction. But we do also have like direct familial information about family members who were sharecroppers and sharecropping was post reconstruction after the civil war. So sharecropping was very similar to what went on in the plantations pre the civil war. So it's not like there was this all of a sudden the civil war happened and then white folks decided that, you know, black people could have agency. That's not what happened. It was a continuation of the dominance. It was the continuation of the power structures of plantocracy. Like like we thought and talked a lot about when you walk into a plantation, it's already performing whiteness. How do you, how do you um, deconstruct the whiteness that it's performing so that blackness so my opinion is that all plantations are actually black spaces because there were more black people on the plantation than there were white. It's, it's a labor camp and the labor were black enslaved people. So how do we take this black, this white, this place that's performing Eurocentric whiteness and then recast it as a black space? 
Weidman Davis Dance has been driven to answer the call for what is important right now. And so we moved into discussing what relevance could mean or what it means to both of them. Yeah, it's hard for me to look at dance now. Mm -hmm. Um, I just feel like I've seen so much of it and been a part of so much of it. And if someone actually really doesn't feel connected in a visceral way to that artist, that completely comes out. The detached choreographer, I was never a dancer. And so I just put the steps on the dancers and I'm separate from the work. Like that reads to me on stage. I can, I can feel that. So do you think Weidman Davis dance is one that uh, continues to let its feet go deeper into the sand and rooted in the original mission statement? Or do you feel as though you've been asked to swim differently with the tides? Now, we made this mission, which is just like really lofty a long time ago and had no ethic like that. Why did they was dance where dance is at the, is the central focus, but not the, the only, soul. not the sole focus. Mm-hmm. This is like, you know, 15 years ago we made That's this. That's kind of unheard of for 15 years ago. We were all still wanted to boogie. <laughs> right, right. But we didn't, we just knew that we were interested in uh, some other things, but we had no idea what they were. We just knew we liked we liked driving in a car and looking at architecture. We knew, and we didn't know how we were going to make work that reflected architecture. We didn't know that plantation was going to be the architecture we'd be looking at. Isn't that incredible? But we knew we liked architecture. We his father's a visual artist. We knew we liked visual arts. We go to the museum all the time. We didn't know how we were going to get it. But we got a performance visual artist in the work who does an installation and does visual art as well and does a performance. So. These things that we thought about some 15 years ago, we're now actually, we've lived into it. And not, not knowing at the beginning, that's where we were going. But we did have an interest in the beginning. I just don't think we really were rooted in how to manifest it all. But isn't that amazing, though? You, you, you start down this path and the further, it sounds like the further along you go, the more you said it, Tanya, it manifests. You're like, oh, this was that little kernel of something that I thought about 15 years ago, and now it's full on happening. Yeah. I'd like to read a quote from Plato's Symposium on Love. And the subtext is one that says, no part of the world hates another part. He goes on to say, certainly the lamb does not hate the life and form of the wolf, but is fearful of his own destruction, which is occasioned by the wolf. Nor does the wolf kill and devour the lamb out of hatred for him, but out of love for himself. Nor does man hate man, but the vices of man. Nor do we envy the stronger or smarter their gifts out of hatred for them, but out of solicitude for ourselves, fearing lest we completely succumb to them. Could you respond in a way that reflects your interpretation of this or how you feel about it? Tanya said this thing a couple of days ago, we were talking to somebody and she's like, well, you know, I'm in Chicago, so I can walk to the end of my block and there could be like, you know, 500 people walking down the street as a um, critical mass, mass, right? And the performance of critical mass and the power that that body has moving as a group, right? And so though these are the lambs, these lambs, multiple lambs, start to surround that wolf and that wolf 
becomes actually frightened because not them individually, their weakness, but the mass of the lambs surrounding the wolf is bigger than the wolf's power can overcome. And so that's where we are now in protest. And so thinking about the kind of energy that people exert, both good and bad, rioting and peaceful protest, all of those things brings about a change. And so we can't have, it's just proof. We could have without it, but history tells us that it's only through shedding of blood and actual violent rioting and those things do we actually accept. Oppressor says, okay, I'll relent a little bit. Do you feel as though that that's something that we don't see the evidence of or the reap the rewards in our current generation? It happens after our lifetimes? No, I think that we just we just go on and it's happening. We don't acknowledge it. Like my mom said, my mom said to me, you know, that these young people today, they're not having it. My generation was post uh, civil rights movement and integration. And our thing with my generation was about getting ahead. We hadn't had access. We were about utilizing the access that was just granted us. Now, this new generation is saying, I see it and this is not right and I need more access. So it's just that they knew what they were doing. This generation says, yeah, I see it, but that's not enough. We've got to keep going. So I think that we just don't acknowledge it because we live into it. And we just transition into the progress as opposed to going, okay, this is a progressive moment. Let's put a flag down and say it happened here. No, 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 no. That's not how it happens. It's like, it just rolls forward, you know, so. Hate is cultivated. You know, we don't even know why we're so dependent on it. We just keep doing it because it's a behavioral path dependency. We really don't know how to get out of it. Hate is cultivated by just the amount of melanin someone has in their skin and how simplistic that is. Like, it's just a stupid moniker to even base the dominance on. It's not behooving us to hold on to it. No. And the reason I, I led with that Plato thing, too, is that after I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's true. But then, aside from self-love, for some reason, the lamb will, or vice versa, the lamb and wolf look at one another as a threat. And so where does the threat come from? And what was the seed of this threat that exists that we're contending with right now? I think it's economical. Economical? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're reading Isabel Wilkerson's cast. She like really starts to talk about this kind of using nature as a reference to human existence and how maybe we shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Because there are some things that are happening in nature, which is why they're in nature. They're responding to survival in a kind of way that we're supposed to have rationale and logic to help us understand that maybe that's not the best way to respond. Exactly. So when we reserve and we go, it's about economics, that's true. But the problem is, is that the people who said that I'm fiscally conservative. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but (laughs) I buy everything on sale. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So my vote is going to go conservative because I'm fiscally conservative, but humans are always a part of it. So humanity is a part of it. So you can never get rid of the social in an election. Social is as important as economic, because when you take away the economics, you got a social problem. 
And so this is where we are now. So, but we have a social, economical problem that's steeped in racism and, and, and white supremacy and that we can't get away from it. Out in the nature, the animals just go, I'm hungry, I need to eat. I'm scavenging for food. We know not to go to our neighbor's house and break in and scavenge for food. We know better. So we have to kind of like think about, does everything need to be compared to nature? It's not always the best response to So I hear you refer to this time as a time of overt exaggeration. Do you feel as though you will see what you hope to see in your lifetime? I think there'll be a series of micro changes that will happen in our lifetime that will eventually be macro. Uh, Because globally, just so much is happening. Like the questions of nationalism, like we were talking about nationalism last year and the year before that. Now it's like we're talking about survival. So is nationalism really so important now? Because you're trying to stay alive because there's this pandemic. Exactly. So the conversations are shifting just in terms of how we're living in the world. So I think some things are going to change just simply because they have to. I don't know a whole lot about social movements aside from the ones that we all grew up reading, but this feels also like one of the rare instances where something like the BLM movement has been so absorbed in European countries Mm -hmm. that they have taken the time to look across the pond and see the nonsense bullshit. And what's happening in Belarus now, I have to say that that was probably spawned by some BLM movement. We have a friend, Dahlia Nahar, who was actually maybe a, I'm not sure if she was at the performance that you were at, but she came down to see the performance. And her father was a um, major fan of Martin Luther King. But he was a fan of Martin Luther King because Martin Luther King was a sort of disciple of the Gandhi. And her father is Indian. And so her father is like really steeped in social, was her father passed a year ago, I think, steeped in social justice through the nonviolent lens. And so when we start to see that the same thing that bothers me here in this country or in this community bothers someone else in another community, the communities start to come together, and that's where the world gets nervous. The powers that be get nervous. When it comes from inside, inside a human being or inside a community or a culture, that for me is cause for optimism and excitement, even despite the the nonsense you have to go through to kind of let the seas calm again. And we're global. I mean, you know, the internet did that. The internet connected the world in a way that, like, you see and know everything that's happening all around the world. You may not know the, you know, different versions of it. Like we were talking earlier about the fact. You may not know all the facts, but you you get the response and the, you know, the, that you get movement. And then that movement, like, wow, I think I need to move on that. I need to move because I know I have the same situation here. We need to move on, act on this. So BLM is like, you know, that's exactly what actually sparked us to start this project. That And that's kind of really interesting for us with this work to think that in 2015, we were thinking about Black Lives Matter as we were in Germany working and having weird experiences and going, huh, this is weird. 
So could I ask you, do you feel responsible for sharing your history, your intentions, and drive to audiences? Or do you feel good with letting the work do all the speaking? I don't get cool points because I see it a certain way. I feel like it just kind of informs me more of like, okay, I'm good with, like I think about windows. You're in a house, you walk past that window, and you go to the next window. I'm not going back down to look out that window anymore. That's for someone else to see now. And as I keep moving forward in life, I'm going to stop looking at those windows that were behind me because I've done them. I've seen all the angles and all the different ways and what's in that window. And so I don't feel the need to kind of hold on to a kind of place fixed. Now, my instinct is to be fixed. But through our work together, I'm able to kind of go, let that go. You only can get something new if you let some old stuff go, like you had to make space. So, um, and I think we had that relationship with each other where we're always kind of figure out how to get outside of the fixedness. There's a bravery to that though, Tanya and Thaddeus, because there is sort of that adage, if you love something, let it go, it'll come back. But there is bravery in that. And just like, I'm going to put it down as opposed to scratching at the coffin and, um, when the time is right, it'll happen again. I think hopefully for those who are listening uh, to this can just take solace in that. It's okay. And sometimes it's like, otherwise we're trying to hold a hand up to a tidal wave and it's, it's silly. It's a futile effort. And, well, I, also, I, and I also add that there's nervousness for oh, me, right. nervousness in the fact that I just know at this moment, I'm not thinking about making Right. Well, I'm not thinking about those kinds of, that kind of making. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about something else, and I'm going to let myself think about that until that thought is full enough to be able to go, uh-huh, I know what I'm going to do. Because we, we talk a lot and we share a lot our thoughts, and then as a result of a series of time going by, something is like a wealth of information that we can kind of dig into is present, and then we go, that's the nucleus of where we need to go. As you have heard, this is a couple with a resounding commitment to the now, to process, to community. Shared experiences are what bind us all together, and for Weidman Davis Dance, it is a battle cry, an internal hunger to do away with the fog of the past, to allow a clearer vision of the future to manifest. Our conversation later extended into laughter, wishes that we had lived closer together so that we could hang more often, and mutually celebrating the value of simply this, talking. Talking about any and all things. Tanya and Thaddeus, to me, are powerful. And for as powerful as they are singularly combined, their voices resonate within each other and produce provocative wisdom that at its most molecular level is born from compassion. If you'd like more information, you can find them at WeidmanDavisDance.org, all one word. Before I sign off, I'd like to thank our incredible composer, Ben Coleman, and our podcast producer, editor, friend, at Times Therapist, Jacob Chisenhall, and the entire Stave Dance team for facilitating this series. Join us next time as we continue to walk down these roads that divide and blur the past from the present. I'm George Stave, and all of us at Stave Dance and Secret Architecture the process of process, wish you continuous insights and magical aha moments. 
Until next time, take good care.